Whoa, good morning, okay. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jared Lawson. Uh, I am the pastoral resident here at Parkway on staff here. If you're in the foyer, just get your coffee, make your way in here. Uh, We will begin. We've been talking about how to think biblically, going over how to think Christianly, if you will, uh, political and social issues that we face today. And today, uh, we're going to talk, continue that, uh, talking about resistance and revolution. So up to this point, everyone's been fine. No one's gotten frustrated with anything that's been said. And then today, it's all going to burn down, okay? So we're going to look at three uh, things in particular. What does the Bible say about our relationship to civil government? just in general, and then is there ever a situation where we can resist, where we can disobey the government, and then finally, is there ever a situation where we can rebel, where we can overthrow, go against the government, like if they tax our tea too highly, stuff like that, okay? So we're going to look at those three things, and this is a difficult topic, and it has been historically, not because the Bible's unclear, but because of sin, okay? We have hearts that naturally want to rebel against authority that is placed over us. If you want evidence, you can look at, I don't know, the Garden of Eden and the first sin ever that was committed, rebelling against authority that's been placed over man. And so we have hearts that are, that are naturally rebellious. That's a part of our fallen nature, okay? And so the Bible knows that, and so it's gonna push against us a little bit. Any parent knows uh, you never have to teach your kid to disobey. They'll just do that naturally. You have to teach them to obey. You have to teach them to resist the desire to disobey so that they might uh, obey you. So we have these hearts that are naturally bent towards rebellion. And so when it comes to government, People have been, you know, hating and complaining the government ever since governments existed, okay? No one naturally says, yes, authority placed over me. Tell me what I can and cannot do. I love that. Okay, rather, uh, we, we want to resist that authority, especially not only human beings, but Americans, okay? What's one of our favorite flags? Come and take it, right? We've got a cannon. Come and take it. I have a neighbor who has that flying on the back of his golf cart, Ken, I'm really confused. We're like at the pool and then I just see this come and take it. So I went and stole his golf cart and he was upset and I was confused. You're telling me, okay, bad joke. Uh, So that's, you know, give me liberty or give me death. That is our American spirit, okay? So not only are we humans with this fallen nature, we're Americans. We're at the center point of of the revolutionary spirit and on top of that, we're Texan. Okay, we spend our time talking about how much better we are than all the other states, especially California, right? And how all our problems would go away if we just seceded, which is all true, but that's not my point. My point is we have this sort of revolutionary spirit. Even when we uh, want to say something positive about the government, we can't. Winston Churchill's famous quote was, uh, democracy is the worst form of government except all the others that have been tried, Okay, notice that he didn't say democracy is a great form of government. He said they're all terrible and uh, democracy is just the least bad of all the terrible, right? So that is uh, our, our, our kind of attitude naturally towards the government. Now, we will one day find a government, see a government that comes that is perfect, but we'll look at that uh, towards, towards the end of the teaching. So I say all that to say, uh, prepare your hearts, Uh, the Bible is going to naturally nudge, press against that desire to rebel. And if we get upset by that, it's not because we're Christian, it's because we're American, right? It's because we want our rights and things like that. So we need to understand that this temptation to go with our emotions or go with our frustrations is very present, and God knows that. 
right? So the Bible is going to try and form us because God is far more concerned with your heart formation being formed to the image of Christ than he is uh, the rights that we should have as citizens and things like that. So we're gonna look at those three things. What the Bible says about our relationship to civil government. Is there ever a time where we can resist the government? And if so, when and how is there ever? And then thirdly, is there ever a time where we can rebel against the government? And if so, how? So let's look at that first. What does the Bible say about our relationship to civil government? The first thing that we say is we, as Christian citizens, are to obey the government in general. We are to obey the government in general. So the book of Daniel gives us this uh, foundational insight into what happened, what is happening behind the kingdoms of the world, what is happening behind every government that is set up. As the Israelites are being taken into exile, right? They're conquered, they're taken into Babylon. Jeremiah says this, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find Welfare. Okay, so they're to submit to the Babylonians. They're not to rebel. Why? Because God is in control. What is the message of the book of Daniel over and over and over again? God is the one that is in control of earthly kingdoms. God is the one that is in control of earthly kingdoms. And in fact, in Daniel 7, we get this incredible vision of these four terrifying beasts that are the kingdoms of the world. And then uh, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days, right? God sitting on his throne who judges and takes away the kingdoms in the world and then brings the eternal kingdom and hands it to one like the Son of Man, right? Hands it to Christ. Over and over and over again, Daniel screams, God is the one. No matter how powerful Babylon looks or how powerful Persia looks, God is the one that raises them up and takes them away. Proverbs 21.1 says, uh, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it to wherever he wills. And so with that foundation, we have uh, Romans 13, this idea that God's absolutely in charge of everything. We have Romans 13, which has kind of been a verse that we've, or a passage we've continually come back to this semester. Romans 13, one through seven, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Uh, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? When you do what is good, you will receive uh, his approval." for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you must also pay taxes. Uh Uh-oh. Pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So we see there, God is the one who established government, right? God established government to uh, restrain evil, to do good, and therefore obedience to government is obedience to God and rebellion against Government is rebellion against God. So why is the Bible okay saying to us, obey? Don't worry about anything else, just obey because they know God's the one pulling, God's the, one pulling the strings behind the scenes. Right? God establishes the government, he takes them away, so he just tells us, obey. First Peter 2, we see another important passage. First Peter 2, 13 through 21. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme 
or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, uh, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedoms as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to good and gentle, but also to the, un- or to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer, for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for this is what you have been called to, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might also follow in his steps. So you see, Peter there says, uh, submit, says honor, and one of the key messages of the whole letter of First Peter is how to endure suffering well how to endure suffering for Christ's sake. And so in that context, we see here to submit to human institutions. And then he turns to servants and says, submit to your master, not only to the gentle, but to unjust as well. And then what's the example he says to follow? Christ's example, right? No one has ever suffered more injustice than the only perfect human who's ever lived, right? And that's the example that we follow, Christ's example. So pushing back against our desire to say, I only want to follow you know, the government when it's good or just or Christian or whatever, the Bible here just says, submit, right? Submit, follow Jesus' example, right? It's similar to you know, if uh, there's a marriage that's having trouble and the husband says, well, I'll love her when she finally submits to me. And the wife says, well, I'll submit to him when he finally loves me. Like, you're, getting, you're worrying about the other person's responsibility. When the Bible talks to you, he says, love like Christ loves the church and says, submit, Right? You're, you're worrying about the wrong thing. And similarly here, if we say, well, when the government does its job and is good and pleasing to me, then I'll do what the Bible tells me to do, we're getting it backwards. Okay? So the Bible doesn't really give you those options. It simply just says, obey. It doesn't say, obey when the circumstances are pleasing to you. It just simply says, obey. This includes our least favorite, paying taxes. Uh-oh, everyone's reaching for their wallets and purses. Um, so I've heard some people say, you know, taxes are unbiblical. We saw in Romans 13. Uh, also pay taxes for the authorities. Uh, our ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all who uh, are owed, right? So Paul directly telling them, pay your taxes. When the Bible says a uh, command, by the way, the reason it's doing that is because the people that the apostles are writing to aren't doing that thing. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, don't get drunk on the communion wine, what is happening in the Corinthian church? They're getting drunk on the communion wine, right? That's why we have such tiny cups for our wine, okay? I'm just kidding. So, right, when Paul is writing to the Roman church and saying, submit, pay your taxes, there's at least a desire not to, that he's having to correct. So often our frustrations, that's exactly the same sort of frustration that the biblical audience is experiencing as well. So we need to realize that. Uh, Matthew 22, this is kind of the key verse for paying our taxes. Uh, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, uh, Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him among, among with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? 
show me a coin uh, for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to him, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. So lest you think I shouldn't pay taxes to the government because they're going to use it for bad things, Jesus and Peter and Paul are paying taxes into a system that's also, you know, some really bad stuff. I think Zach talked about this last week. Gladiatorial games, infanticide, idol worship, emperor worship, things like that are constantly happening uh, in, you know, polytheism, constantly happening in the Roman government. And yet, Jesus and Paul and Peter continue to pay their taxes and command other Christians to do so as well. Uh, now, uh, just to clarify, if the government were to come to you and say, you give your money directly to Planned Parenthood, that's different. You can resist that, but you can't generally say, I'm not going to pay taxes because the government might use that to fund organizations like Planned Parenthood. You see the difference there? Someone comes to you directly and says, you directly give. So, this uh, obedience that we see uh, throughout the scriptures uh, is a command to us specifically, or just especially, when we don't like it. When we don't like the fact that the government's telling us what to do, if we think the speed limit is too low. It's ridiculous. 30 miles an hour? Are you kidding me? Look at this open road. I can just fly down. Do you get to just be like, dumb limit, and then just speed as fast as you can? No. You have to obey. Right? If you think taxes are too high, do you just think, mm, too high, not going to pay, I'm going to cheat on my taxes? No, you still have to submit, even when you don't like it. Right? During the prohibition, the dumb laws outlawing alcohol, you can't say, dumb, drinking all I want. Right? You've got a moonshine vault. I don't know how alcohol works. Still, yes, thank you. Uh, now, if they would have said, you, know, you can't drink wine in communion... The one thing that's actually, you know, commanded in the scriptures, then you can resist, but they, they made an exception for that uh, in the prohibition. So you are allowed to not like a law. You're even allowed to critique a law, but you still have to submit to it. You still have to obey it. The Bible doesn't care if you agree with it or not. Okay, the Bible's simply just going to tell you uh, to obey. So similar, this is a situation that, similar situation that we face all the time in the church. There are people who want to volunteer, or who will volunteer for a while, and then they'll step away and will go ask, you know, why, why don't you want to volunteer anymore? And they say, well, my heart's not in it anymore, so I don't want to be fake. You know, we think, okay. So I'm confused. So you only are going to obey when you feel like the energy to obey, or you really feel, you know, people in, in, that I went to college with are always, you know, I know we're supposed to go to church, but, you know, I have my quiet times, and church just feels so wooden, and I'm not really, you know, all in with it, and so I don't want to be fake when I go. And they're getting it completely backwards. You know, begrudging obedience is better than disobedience, right? How would your boss react? Ah, I wasn't feeling work today, right? How, do, you, do you treat your kids like that? They're not perfect little angels, so just not going to care for them today. You know, whenever I really feel loved by them, then I'll be their parent. no. Right? It's the same with the government. It's not only when you love every law that's coming your way that you obey. The Bible simply says, obey. You obey and you wait for the feelings to catch up again. Remember, God is very aware of our natural bent to rebel against authority. And so the scriptures are going to try and form us, conform us uh, to the image of Christ. And so God is far more concerned with your heart formation. So 
What does the Bible say about uh, our relationship with civil government? One, God has established the kingdoms of the world. Christian citizens are in general to obey and to submit to the laws of government, even when they don't like it. The reason we don't want to submit, the reason we want to speed on the roads, the reason we don't want to pay our taxes is because we have this nature that doesn't like authority, and that's what God cares about. That's what God wants to work on. So, generally what the Bible says, now, next section, resistance. That's all great. Romans 13, that's, yeah, whatever. When do we get to resist the government? Well, here you go. So, uh, resistance, kind of how I'm defining them. Resistance, by that I mean kind of a negative disobedience, right? The, a law is coming that is unbiblical or something like that, and you don't obey it, right? I'll define revolution as you're going after to overthrow. It's more positive going after to overthrow the government. But resistance, when do we get to disobey uh, a law, and specifically the scripture is going to tell us the general rule. You can and should, can and should disobey the government when the government is asking you to disobey God. You can and should disobey the government when the government is asking you to sin, when the government is asking you to disobey God. So we see a couple explicit examples throughout the scriptures. We see uh, civil authorities telling the apostles not to preach the gospel Matthew 28, we see the Great Commission. We all know the passage. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then Acts starts, and they start doing it, right? They start preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit descends. They preach. People begin to become Christians to join the church. And then in Acts 4, uh, we see the council, the Sanhedrin, getting upset with this. Uh, Acts 4.18, so they called them and charged them, the apostles, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So directly going against Jesus' command. And the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And, they had, uh, and when they had brought him them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That can be the uh, title of this section. When can we rebel, or not rebel, resist the government? We must obey God rather than men when that is the kind of mantra. Uh, And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence, they, the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple uh, from, and from house to house, they did not cease to preach the gospel of that, or sorry, to preach that Christ is Jesus. So notice their attitudes there at the end. There is not uh, capitulation. They don't say, fine, if you're gonna beat us, we won't preach Christ anymore. And there isn't begrudging obedience. So they don't say, well, Jesus told us to, so we have to, and they do it quietly. Rather, they, there's joy as they preach the gospel, knowing that they're going to endure suffering, and they rejoice at the suffering. So they resist, they disobey when they're being asked not to preach the gospel. Uh, we see examples in the book of Daniel of resisting civil authorities when they ask you to go against God's command. The book of Daniel is filled with this. Uh, in the first chapter of uh, Daniel, we see uh, Daniel and his buddies, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, who will have their names changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is what we know them by because of veggie tales. Um, uh, they're asked 
to eat food that is unclean, uh, to be brought before the king, kind of serve in his courts. Uh, and we'll pick it up there in verse t- uh, six. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. It was unclean food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So he does technically get permission, but there is that resistance of I'm being asked by, by the way, a nation that's just conquered me and drugged me all the way to their nation as a slave, as a servant to serve in the king's uh, courts, but I refuse. I will not defile myself. So he goes on the Daniel diet, right? We see this in the Christian bookstores, which by the way, the whole point of that story is that they were fatter at the end. So before you go to Mardell and buy the Daniel fast so that you can lose weight, the whole point of the story is that they, had, they were fatter than all the rest of the guys. Anyway, so they refuse right, to defile themselves and disobey God's commands. We see that in chapter three with the great statue, Rakshak and Bini uh, refuse to bow down to the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold uh, and the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon, don't know what that is, Tim, uh, the harp and the bagpipe, apparently there's Scottish people there, Uh, And every kind of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve the gods or worship the golden images that I have set up? And they answered him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So again, not only do they refuse to bow down because they cannot worship any other god but Yahweh, but notice in verse 18, the point is not that they know they're gonna be delivered. They say he can, he will, but even if he doesn't, right? Thousands of Christian martyrs throughout the history of the church have made this same stands and been killed, have not been delivered in this life. The point there is that they are refusing, refusing to bow down to any other God but the one true God. So we see that, and then we see also in Daniel 6, the famous lion's den chapter. Uh, Daniel, there's this decree that goes out that uh, no one can pray to any other God Uh, or person, but the king. And then there in verse 10, halfway down, we see when Daniel knew that this document, making this declaration had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows and the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So he's aware right now, he's aware, okay, that law has been signed. It's now illegal for me to pray. And then he goes and does it. He breaks the law because he's continuing to pray. And notice he's doing it as he had done previously. It's not that he saw a law that was unjust and so he got upset and he's like, you know what? I'm gonna stick it to them and go pray anyway. He's just continuing the faithful life that he was living before, right? He's continuing to pray to the Lord. He's not doing this out of spite. He's just continuing to be faithful. So we see that resistance when the government's asking you to do something against God's law. We also see when the government is asking you to participate in murder. Uh, we see Exodus 1, the Hebrew midwives. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, 
Uh, and it, uh, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, uh, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Uh, they are vigorous for the, they give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with them, uh, dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and were very strong and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And so not only do they disobey the order, but they also lie to him about it, right? It's because Hebrew women are just super strong and give birth before we get there. It's not our fault. Blame them, right? Uh, that's why. So they lie to him about it and he blesses them for it. We have a very similar passage in the book of Joshua. Joshua sends spies into Jericho and the king of Jericho hears about it and wants to kill them. They're spying out his land. And Rahab, the prostitute, hides them and then lies to the king, says, oh yeah, they came here, but they quickly left. If you hurry and pursue them, uh, you can go catch them, right? Same thing. She not only disobeys the order to bring out the men, but she lies to them uh, about it. We see something similar uh, again with Herod and the wise men. King Herod hears that baby Jesus is in a manger somewhere uh, as the wise men are coming, as they're looking at the star, Saturn, whatever it is. I haven't seen those fancy uh, documentaries where they're like, this is the star. See how it circles the earth? That's how they knew. Uh, but anyway, uh, the wise men uh, were telling them, and Herod says, okay, when you find him, let me know so I can come and worship him too. And in parentheses, I mean, kill him. Uh, and so the wise men know this. They're warned by an angel and they go a different way. They ignore his direct orders. And then the, the final thing we explicitly see in the Bible is breaking the law uh, to save life. We see this in the book of Esther. Uh, Mordecai and Haman have a beef and Haman uh, convinces the king, uh, un unbeknownst to him, to have uh, signed a decree that would essentially wipe out all the Jews in, in Persia. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and has her, she's a queen, to go before the king and plead with him. But it is illegal uh, for anyone to enter the king's presence without him summoning them. And so it's a death wish unless he uh, reaches out his, his scepter. And so look at that last verse down there. Uh, Esther says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, Law, and if I perish, I perish. So she's knowing she's breaking the law, but to save life, she willingly breaks it so she could save the Jews. And the king does uh, reach out his scepter and she's saved and all the Jews are eventually saved. So those are some explicit examples that we see in the scriptures, but then we can, uh, can see from other biblical passages, there's other forms of resistance that we can biblically do that aren't you know, explicit narratives shown uh, in scriptures. I've listed a few here. Resisting when being asked to renounce the faith. Uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christian martyrs are killed uh, because they don't renounce the faith. It's illegal to be a Christian. And so the government goes to Christian and says, you know, denounce Christ. And they say no, right? That's resisting the government and they're killed uh, for their resistance. Also throughout uh, the early church, there were certain times where it was illegal to just have scriptural texts. So sometimes persecution wasn't persecuting the human, like beating them or killing them or anything like that. It was just to burn uh, the emperor, whoever wanted to get rid of all the scriptural texts. And so they would go to them and say, I know you have the gospel of John in here and probably Romans, you know, the Roman soldiers would say, give them to me so I can get rid of them. And so they would either, either resist and they would be, you know, harshly treated. They'd be beaten, thrown in prison for that. Or the more shrewd people, knowing that the soldiers couldn't really read, would give them like a medical textbook and be like, that's, uh, that's Revelation you know, set on fire, have at it, uh, right? So resisting when asked uh, to renounce the faith. 
you can resist when you're being asked to do something unjust. So if you're a, a business owner uh, in Jim Crow South and you are, it is illegal for you to serve uh, black people because of their race, you can resist that, right? That's an unjust law. You cannot participate in sin uh, if the government is asking you to. And then resisting to protect life or to love your neighbor. You know, the classic example is hiding Jews from Nazi Germany. Again, that's illegal if you're you know, in Germany and not delivering the Jews to be uh, killed. But if you're hiding them, right, that's resisting uh, because of love of the neighbor to protect their life. We see Billy Graham uh, when he was preaching in the 50s all throughout the South. Again, there's segregation, government-mandated segregation uh, in, in a lot of the southern states. And when he was in Mississippi, he did this at a couple of his crusades. He personally pulled down uh, the ropes that segregated his audience, right? breaking the law. One time, the governor of Mississippi even directly told him, do not do that. And he did it anyway. Right? He resisted uh, for the sake of uh, love of nature. So those are some biblical principles. And then just the fact that we don't have a king over us. We live in a, a, you know, a, a democracy in, in America. For most of world history, there's an over, oversimplification, but you just have a king and what he says goes. But because of, of our governmental system, our votes count towards how the government operates. And so we have within our government uh, allowance to nonviolently protest, right, in the First Amendment, uh, to essentially let the government know I don't like these laws, right? You're nonviolently protesting. The government has set it up in a sense to say, let me know what you don't like, not that they can bend to your will, but to be aware of uh, your displeasure with a certain law. So you're allowed to protest, not riot. I feel like that's an important clarifier in our day. Uh, you're allowed to protest nonviolently. Uh, similarly, the Supreme Court can decide when a law is unconstitutional. Right, so laws, state laws can change. So Brown v. Board of Education uh, in the 50s didn't just say, okay, segregation is now over. Uh, it said the U.S. state law establishing racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. The state laws were unconstitutional. Okay, so that's similar to how our democracy is set up. So when you resist in those uh, elements, you haven't sinned because the government has given you allowance. And so, uh, again, in, in America, you can resist a lower government when the lower government is acting unconstitutionally. So Martin Luther King Jr. is right federally uh, because Alabama is the one who's acting un unconstitutional, uh, denying black people the right to vote. So you might still get put in prison, but you haven't sinned. You haven't gone against the scriptures because the government allows, uh, allows you to resist if they're acting unconstitutionally. So fun case study, fun little experiment. Let's say there was a pandemic and let's say uh, some states, not the great state of Texas, but others, like, I don't know, I'll just make one up, California, mandates, you know, uh, you have to wear a mask and you don't. Are you doing it? Because, three reasons. One, you think it's actually sin to wear a mask. You think they're asking you to disobey God. You think they're acting unconstitutionally. Two. Or three, government can't tell me what to do. Right? Which one is it? Right, obviously of those three, based on what we've just talked about, number three is the only one you're not allowed to do, although that's what we want to do. Mask, I'm not wearing a face diaper, are you kidding me? Right, you just spike it. Or I've seen people in England who are only wearing a mask and nothing else. It's very, very disturbing. So anyway, uh, right, do you believe they're actually asking you to sin? Do you believe they've done something unconstitutionally? You can do one of those two. You can resist for those two reasons. But if you're wrong, you need to recognize if you're wrong, you have sinned. 
If you're wrong and they're not asking you to sin and they're not doing something unconstitutional, you have gone against Romans 13. You have actually rebelled against a government or you've resisted a government that God has set up and you've actually fallen into sin. So there's some weightiness to this, right? There's some weightiness to our decisions and our interpretations of what is actually sinful and what is actually unconstitutional. So you can come to different conclusions, which we're seeing this all across churches with opening up and things like that. You can come to different conclusions, but you need to come to those conclusions from wrestling with the scriptures, okay? You need to come to those conclusions from wrestling with the scriptures. We are, first and foremost, we have our identity in Christ. We are people of the book. We allow God to tell us how we act, how we behave. And so our resistance, if it be there. If we, if we do resist, it should be because it comes from the scriptures, not because we're Republican or Libertarian or Texan or whatever it may be. Does that make sense? Our identity is first and foremost uh, in Christ. So resistance, summary. You can resist if the government is asking you to disobey God. You can disobey the government if it asks you to sin. And then you can resist a lower government if it is acting unconstitutionally. Now, lastly, the one you've been waiting for, rebellion. We'll scrub this from the record so that the government doesn't have a record of us saying when you can rebel. Is there ever a situation when we can revolt, fight against, or overthrow the government? Is there ever a situation where you can actually positively go and revolt against the government? So again, defined as uh, uh, more, uh, more than just disobedience, you're actually going and trying to overthrow the government. There's different types of revolution. Uh, you could say there's a small-scale type of revolution if you're fighting against you know, an officer of the state, a policeman or something, and then large-scale revolution where you're actually trying to overthrow the government, like the American Revolution or the French Revolution, things like that. So when can we, oh sweet sacred scriptures, the Bible doesn't say. <laughs> the Bible is silent. Notice with those other two uh, sections, the Bible is pretty clear, right? Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, obey the government. Okay, well, when can we uh, disobey the government? Oh, easy. Here's the book of Daniel. Uh, and here's, you know, several times where the apostles disobey when they're told not to preach the gospel. And then, okay, well, what about revolution? Nothing, right? Bible doesn't say. So why doesn't the Bible say anything about revolution. Far be it for me to presume upon the mind of God, but if I were to guess, I would think God knows if he gives us an inch, we'll take a mile, right? There would be a revolution literally every day. Your Starbucks coffee would be 570 for like this much of coffee and that much of milk, and you would burn every Starbucks to the ground in the area, right? So God probably knows if he gives us an inch, uh, we'll take a mile. So uh, we need to realize that throughout the history of the church, the brightest minds that the church has produced have really wrestled with this and a lot of the times come to different conclusions. Some similar, but some different. So Augustine uh, believed that only the government uh, could justly use force, not individual citizens. He thought citizens could resist only by their martyrdom, right? You don't like a law, go die for it, right? Then maybe the, you know, the king will get convicted and he'll change the law. Uh, rebellion may be allowed uh, he also said rebellion may be allowed if the law forces citizens to commit unjust or impious acts. So a little confusing. He seems, uh, I'm not quite sure what he's, uh, his, his explicit view is there. It could be, it's up to interpretation. And then he's the first one to say an unjust law is no law at all, which we, we know mainly from uh, MLK, quoted this quite a bit. Thomas Aquinas, another brilliant mind in the history of the church, uh, had the idea that, you know, natural law, there's a natural law that's uh, given man these inherent rights. Uh, so a law is unjust and should be disobeyed when it's not rooted in natural law. 
but he would still argue that citizens should uh, only disobey unjust laws, only resist, they should never rebel. He would argue that. He also argued that in extreme cases, if rebellion is necessary, it's subordinate government officials that could do the rebelling, not the actual citizens. We'll see uh, John Calvin has a similar, similar idea as well. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the, the, the original. Uh, whenever there was the uh, peasants' war, the German peasants' war, he sympathized with a lot of the peasants' grievances, but when they rebelled against the princes, he told the princes, you can put this rebellion down, right? They've stepped out of line in this great rebellion. John Calvin, again, like Aquinas, thought lower magistrates should fight against higher magistrates when they're acting tyrannical. We'll see some of this uh, when we look at the founding fathers because they're committing a crime against the citizens under their care. So the lower magistrates who are caring for these people, if higher magistrates are committing crimes, they should rebel to protect the citizens. But individuals were not to rebel or overthrow the government because God is the one who removes kingdoms. God's the one who's sovereign over kingdoms. And then the Scottish reformer, John Knox, everybody's favorite, uh, said it was sinful basically not to rebel against a tyrant. Okay? So you get the total opposite. But he was Scottish. You know, they all paint their faces blue and scream freedom all the time. So you kind of, I mean, throughout church history, you have some similarities, but then some people who are all over the map. So just recognize this is difficult. But basically, everything is going to come down to how do you interpret Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2? How do you interpret Romans 13, that long passage we looked at earlier? You need to understand the cultural context that Paul is writing in. As Paul is pinning that letter to the Roman church, does anybody know who? I probably have it in your notes, so it's not impressive if you yell it out. But does anybody know who was the emperor at that time? Maybe I don't have it in your notes. Nero, that's right, yeah. Nero was a pretty bad dude. We talked about him before he would uh, tie Christians to poles and light them on fire for his dinner parties. He would sew animal skin to them and throw them into the gladiatorial games to be ripped apart by lions and bears, stuff like that. Pretty bad guy, right? And while he's emperor, Paul is, is saying to submit to the governing authorities. Now, that doesn't mean, I've heard some pastors say this, that doesn't necessarily mean your governor or your government has to be worse than Nero in order for you to rebel, but it does add some weight. The cultural context always adds some weight to the author's words. So here's the key question. Does Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 mean you can never rebel, in which case conversation's over, teaching's done, or sometimes rebel? That's the key question. Does it mean you can never rebel or sometimes rebel? And we need to realize as we think through this, the burden of proof is on the person making the case for rebellion. Romans 13 says obey, and 1 Peter 2 says submit. So if you're making a case for rebellion, you need to realize the burden of proof is on you to make that case well, okay? So uh, let's look at these two different types of interpretations. For interpretation number one, uh, the idea that Romans 13 is simply just saying to submit regardless. Again, this would put a lot of weight on the fact that emperor, or the, the emperor is uh, Nero, and it, so the text is essentially saying, submit, no matter what. Emperor Nero was horrible. Paul wrote this, and then Paul was killed by Nero, and so was Peter, and so was all the other apostles. So, clearly the Bible is just saying, basically, submit regardless. And that's kind of the first way to uh, interpret Romans 13. And there's not much more you can say about it. Don't rebel. Cool. Have a nice day. Like, great. Okay, we'll submit for the sake of Christ. And if we're killed, we're killed. Uh, that's the first interpretation. The second, which we'll look at kind of more in depth because it's more, it's got a bit of uh, nuance as well. The second interpretation is Romans 13 is giving a general command. And therefore, there may be certain times where rebellion uh, may be appropriate. 
Okay, it's a general command to obey the government, and so there still may be times when rebellion is appropriate. So similar to when Jesus says, we talked about this last week as well, when Jesus says, give to the one who asks of you, we take that as a general command. If, your na- if, if someone comes to you and says, can I have money to hire a hitman to kill my neighbor, right, what do you say? How bad your neighbor, right? You, have, you, you dig a little, no, you, you say no, okay, I'm not gonna help you kill somebody, right? Though they're saying give, and Jesus says give, and doesn't give any clarifiers whatsoever, right? We take into other, uh, other biblical passages knowing that's not great, right? The Bible says don't lie, but also says love your neighbor, right? And so we saw explicitly earlier the Hebrew midwives, they disobey and lie to uh, Pharaoh. Again, uh, Nazi, you know, when the Nazis are coming for Jews, if you're hiding Jews in your home, you, you lie because of love of neighbor, right? So there's your 15th Nazi example. We're always picking on the Nazis, all right, and I just make it easy for us. So, uh, by the way, we have a blog on this on, I think it's called A Theology of Lying that digs into that if you're more interested in that idea of how, how, how to wrestle with those different biblical uh, texts. And so a, a, a simpler way to say this would be uh, rebellion is appropriate when uh, breaking Romans 13 allows you to keep more rules in the Bible, allows you to keep more rules in the Bible. By rebelling, I'm actually keeping, I'm upholding more scriptural commands. So people who have the second interpretation, uh, historically people who interpret Romans 13 or who believe rebellion is appropriate in certain circumstances typically have three areas where rebellion is appropriate. Number one, uh, rebellion is appropriate when the government isn't protecting human liberty. Okay, the argument is simply the government is there to protect human liberty. That's what the government is for. And so when they're not protecting human liberty, Romans 13 is nullified. You don't have to follow it because the government isn't acting like a government. That's the first. The second, uh, which we'll be familiar with, is rebellion is appropriate when the government is acting tyrannical. When the government is a tyrant, rebellion is appropriate. Not just resistance, actual rebellion going and overthrowing the government. This is what the founding fathers believed. In fact, the Declaration of Independence had a long list of uh, tyrannical acts of King George, right? I I have a couple of them here. Uh, He's imposed taxes on us without our consent. Oh my gosh, final straw. Boston Tea Party, we all know the story. Uh, He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their office and the amount of payment of their salaries. How dare he? Uh, Tyrannical acts of King George, right? He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures, right? So that was their their, their, uh, understanding. He is tyrannical, therefore we should overthrow him. It is good and right for us to overthrow King George. The logic behind this is a tyrannical government is not a government. It's a gang masquerading as a government and therefore the people should be protected from that tyrant in the same way you would be protected from a thief, or a murderer or something like that. That's the logic behind this. That, again, is the logic of the founding fathers. King George is oppressing the people. And so we, uh, as the kind of lower governing bodies of the colony, should rebel to protect the people because he's acting tyrannical. Now, we love the founding fathers. I love the founding fathers. Their wigs are beautiful. But before we fist pump, before we enter into a congregational pledge of allegiance, that is the exact logic the exact same logic uh, as the uh, Black Panther Party when it was originally organized. Uh, The Black Panther Party, which was originally called the Black Panther Party of Self-Defense, was organized to protect the black community against what they thought was tyrannical police brutality. Same logic, 
Government is tyrannical. We, therefore, will start a sort of rebellion to protect our community. And that is also the same logic of many of the BLM riots that we've seen over the past few months. There was a very famous viral video that was celebrated on talk shows and was talked about on uh, news organizations of Kimberly Jones, uh, who had this long rant uh, saying that there's this social contract between uh, the government and its people. And once that contract is broken, the people are no longer required to submit to that government and therefore riots are fine because the government's the one that broke the contract. Okay, you, you might think those are ridiculous, those are two totally different situations, which may be the case, but it's the same logic. When the government is acting tyrannical, we don't have to follow what they say and we can kind of do whatever we want, we can rebel and overthrow them. So that's, that's that idea there, the second idea of when rebellion is appropriate, when the government is acting tyrannical. And the third idea of when rebellion is appropriate is when rebellion allows to keep allows you to keep more of God's laws. Rebellion is appropriate when uh, we, are, we are keeping more of God's laws, basically saying I'm keeping actually more of God's laws by rebelling. So again, Nazis, uh, right? They're killing millions of Jews. It's good and right for us to go overthrow them because we're protecting life, we're loving neighbor, we're doing all these other things that the Bible says by actually going and overthrowing the government. So those are kind of historically when people say there is a small window of when rebellion should be allowed. Those are their three kind of ideas. When the government isn't protecting human liberty, when the government is actually tyrannical, and then when actually I'm keeping more of God's laws. We see Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who uh, was a, a Lutheran priest during uh, the Nazi regime, was actually killed uh, for his efforts of overthrowing the Nazi government, had that same conviction. He's keeping more of God's laws by going and trying to overthrow uh, the Nazi government. So within this, if you fall within this second interpretation, that's great. If you've wrestled with the scriptures and you fall within, uh, within this interpretation, but again, you need to realize how much weight you're putting on your interpretation of when someone is tyrannical, of how much taxation is too much. And you need to feel the weight of if you're wrong, you have broken Romans 13, you broke in 1 Peter 2, you sinned, not just against your government, but you are standing in rebellion against God. If you rebel, and you're wrong, the government isn't being sinful, things like that. So you need to feel a bit of that weight. It's fine if you're wrestling with the scriptures, but we need to, again, realize where the burden of proof is. The Bible is just gonna say obey. Romans 13 doesn't even say obey unless they're asking you to disobey God. It just says obey, right? We get that from other passages, so we need to recognize where the scripture is actually putting its weight uh, and realize the consequences of being wrong, okay? Wrong is sin. Romans 13 clearly lays out, uh, if you do this and misstep, right, you're not actually just rebelling against the government, you're actually rebelling against God, therefore obey, right? We need to understand kind of the weight behind that. So, those are two, two uh, that's the biggest determining factor. How are you going to interpret the Bible on this? Basically, we can never resist, right? Paul's in these horrible circumstances and he doesn't resist. He's killed for his faith. Or there may be a small window uh, when you can rebel. You can keep more of God's laws that way and things like that. So, everybody good with that? Revolution, we're ready. Can I get us? Uh, we're gonna say it on one, two, no, I'm not. Okay. Everybody good and mad? You're probably thinking, I can think of one authority I'd like to rebel against. Well, joke's on you. I don't have any authority. <laughs> Basically an intern, okay? So uh, there is a way to hear all these things and view uh, 
Romans 13, view 1 Peter 2 as just simply, you know, I'm just going to have to white knuckle this. I'm just going to have to grip my teeth and submit, and it's going to be horrible, and I'm going to hate the government, and I'm going to have to submit because the Bible tells me to, and then one day I'll die and get relief, right? That's, that's similar. That's how, that's how we can view it. It's just fine. I'll do what God says, right? This begrudging obedience. And the only really way we can feel that is if we've forgotten the gospel, right? Because the gospel doesn't say follow these rules and hate life. The gospel says you have been giving a, given a living hope that you not only look to in the future, but you experience now. Right? You've been given a peace that surpasses all understanding that no matter what happens in this life, there's a resurrection. There's a life to come. You've been given a confidence that your God is the king of the universe and he raises and takes away kingdoms as he wills. And that's your God and your king and your loving father. We've been given this confidence that even the darkness of the world cannot touch. And we do look forward to hope where one day Christ will return. Every worldly government will be returned and he will be taken away and he will establish the perfect kingdom, the perfect government where there is perfect justice, perfect peace, no more frustration, only joy, and we will dwell with him for all eternity. That is the gospel hope that we are meant to live with. That's supposed to be the core of our being that we see everything else through. So rather than just being a very legalistic what does Romans 13 say? Submit. What does 1 Peter 2 say? Blah, blah, blah. Or is there ever a chance to rebel? We're meant to view that through the lens of the gospel, that our king is the one in charge. So no matter the sufferings and situations, we have hope, right? That the government above us that might be bringing the oppression isn't the ultimate one in control. Rather, our God is the ultimate one in control. Amen? Two of you. Great. Let me pray, and then we'll have questions. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you that uh, you are the one in control. There's nothing that anyone can do outside of your sovereign hand, and uh, you tell us in your scriptures that you work all things for good. We know how the story ends. As dark as it might be, as dark as the valley of the shadow of death is, you are with us. You're a good shepherd who care for us, you watch over us, and one day you will bring your perfect kingdom where we will live with you for all of eternity in perfect joy and perfect peace and perfect love. So we praise you for who you are, we praise you for the reality of the gospel, and pray that it would continue to transform our hearts. We love you and pray in your son's name, amen.